0: If you've never been to Arizona, much of it is as you might expect, vast stretches of scrubby, empty desert. I'm a fan of greenery, so I've never thought of the Southwest as a place for me, but to watch storm clouds gather on the horizon or a glowing desert sun sink into darkness is sublime. To see oranges and purples light up the sky, mountains backlit, twilight, to feel a dry breeze. It's an awe-inspiring place I had only been to Arizona once before, to Tucson, actually. Years ago, when I did a semester of grad school, I flew in to profile a militia leader who hunted down undocumented immigrants with thermal cameras and a pack of German shepherds. Now, back in Tucson, I had a much different mission. After a trip to Phoenix, I had only a few days left to track down sources as I investigated Jerry Paisley's claim that the missing congressmen, Nick Begich and Hale Boggs, were assassinated in 1972, their plane bombed. It was here in Tucson where Paisley wed Peggy Begich in 1974. It was here in Tucson where he worked for two mafia families, the Bananos and the Licavolis. And it was here in Tucson where I hope to figure out, once and for all, did Paisley tell the truth? For heart Media, this is Missing in Alaska: the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walzak. This episode, we're going to focus on two photos. It sounds simple, right? Just two photos. But these photos, the red dot photos, are at the center of a web we'll explore extensively. These are the wedding photos that investigators secretly obtained and marked up with stickers, red dots with black numbers. Paisley is red dot number six. Peggy is red dot number seven. Standing next to them are mobsters, an ex-cop, a judge, and others. I got the photos, the originals, from Tom Davis, who worked for the Arizona Department of Public Safety. While working undercover in Tucson in 1974, Davis secretly observed Peggy and Paisley's wedding. In Phoenix, Davis and I spoke for more than five hours. After I left, we stayed in touch. Hey, Tom, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. I sent you a text.
0: Davis, again, is also one of the three investigators who conducted the pivotal Paisley interview at the Pima County Jail in 1994 when Paisley first disclosed the alleged bombing of the congressman's plane. Uh, So I saw your text. Can you tell me what the text said and just how you found it out? Okay. Uh, I I pulled up Google Maps
1: and I went to the corner of Wilmot and Speedway. If you go there and you go in the main building, ask them where the old El Dorado Lodge used to be.
0: The El Dorado Lodge is where the wedding took place. Turns out, it no longer exists. Well, the buildings are still there. But today, they're home to the Mountain Oyster Club, a private club. I drove there with Paul Deccant, our supervising producer. The outside hasn't changed, still stone. The inside, however, has been renovated. It's Western and ornate, a lot of wood. No more 70s decor. We sat down with Pauline Loftus, the manager. Could I show you two photos and see if any of it seems familiar? So, these are photos from a, a wedding, a ceremony, and a reception that took place in 1974 uh, on this property when it was the El Dorado. Does that look familiar?
1: Um. Let me think about it for a little bit. I mean, most of the doorways in the club are big archways, and this one's kind of just a small, regular doorway. It could almost be in the room that we're sitting in. Um, Or either that or in the lobby. There's a... Or is that a picture behind them? Is that a picture?
0: It looks like a picture.
1: Yeah. So...
0: Or is it a mirror? It's hard to tell. It might be. Gumshoe detectives. Now, the three of us wandered through the club, comparing certain features, doorways, etc., to what exists today. Where were the red dot photos taken? Where was the bar where Investigator Tom Davis sat undercover? Um, there's a bar. Can you show? You were saying you think you know where the bar was. Could
1: you take us? I think s- so. And we're gonna go around this way. I think it was in here if you look at that window, I don't think this wall was here. I think that staircase was open to upstairs because there were rooms up there. And so you would have come down the stairs. There was the bar in here and then the doorway there and that window. The bar
2: would have
1: been against the
0: wall right Mm -hmm. there. We thought we found some of the spots in the photos, but it was hard to tell. So much had changed.
1: We don't have original plans of the building. We don't know. Half the time, we don't know what's in the walls, so it's like, oh, there are, we have a lot of surprises.
0: No bodies so far?
1: No, no. In fact, we had um, a pretty major kitchen remodel last summer, and that, I, that kept occurring to me. I would think, like, God, I hope we don't find any bodies when they dig that up.
0: <laughs> in the Peggy Paisley wedding photos taken at the Dorado. Red dot number three is Pete Licavoli Jr., the son of mob boss Pete Horseface Licavoli Sr. Pete Jr. was Paisley's friend. He and his wife, Kathy, even accompanied Paisley and Peggy on their honeymoon in Mexico. For months, I tried to reach Pete Jr., who still lived in Tucson, to no avail. Now, as we left the Mountain Oyster Club, I pulled up another list of possible numbers and dialed away. Number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. So apparently the rule of thumb is if you are an old mobster, you do not have a working phone number. None of them have working phone numbers. They're all dead. They all sound like crazy modem sound at the end. All I wanna do is call some mobsters. I kept striking out. I've reached a number that does not accept solicitations.
3: If you are a solicitor, please add this number to your do not call list and hang up now. Otherwise, please press 1 or
0: stay on the line. I'm going to press 1.
1: Thank you. Please hold. Okay.
2: I'm sorry. This mailbox has not yet been set up by the subscriber. Please try
3: again later.
0: Goodbye. Jeez. Trying to block me as a solicitor. I can't leave a voicemail.
1: Somebody doesn't want to be found.
0: <laughs> I guess we're just going to have to go to his house then. So that's what we did. We went to Pete Licavoli Jr.'s house. At first, we circled the block. Then we pulled up, I hopped out of the car, and rang the bell. Nothing. I knocked. Nothing. We drove to his brother Mike's house, nearby. Mike Licavoli isn't in any of the wedding photos, the red dot photos, I think. I say, I think, because there are a few unidentified men. Maybe he is one of the red dots, I don't know. Like Pete Jr., Mike had been friends with Paisley. When I walked up to Mike's door, I heard a muffled TV. I rang the bell. A dog barked. Someone told it to shut up. I waited. No one came to the door. The TV cut off. I knocked. Nothing. I wondered if the Licavolis had been tipped off that we were in town. I know that sounds paranoid, but hear me out. The day before, I had spoken by phone with Louis Marconi, an ex-cop who, back in the day, was friends with both Paisley and the Licavoli kids. In the wedding photos, Marconi is red dot number five. When we spoke, I played dumb, testing Marconi because I already knew the answer. I asked whether or not he attended Peggy and Paisley's wedding. He said no. I told him I had a photo of him at the wedding. He said basically, okay, prove it, send me the photo. So I cropped out everyone but him and emailed it to him. He was like, yeah, that might be me, I'm not sure. I asked if he didn't recognize himself. Maybe it was him, he said, maybe it wasn't. That was a long time ago. Yeah, okay, but you don't recognize yourself? I asked him if he still spoke with the Licavoli kids. He said no. Remember, this was the day before Paul and I went to the Licavoli's homes. This is why I wondered if someone had tipped them off. I wondered if Marconi had tipped them off. After we left Mike Licavoli's house, the house where someone was clearly home, but nobody came to the door, I called Marconi again. I asked again whether or not he was still in touch with the Licavoli kids. The day before, he said no. Today, he said yes. I asked if he had alerted them that we were in town, digging. He got flustered and hung up on me. Frustrated, I turned my attention to Sal Spinelli, red dot number four. Spinelli, a mobster, was Paisley's close friend, his business partner, and the best man at his wedding to Peggy Begich. He was so close to Paisley, in fact, that even his father attended the wedding. Spinelli Sr. is red dot number eight. At the time, I wasn't sure whether or not Spinelli Jr. was even alive. I'm good at finding people, but he was a ghost. For months, I called and called and emailed and emailed and mailed letters to addresses all over the place. Now, in a last-ditch effort, Paul and I drove around, knocking on doors. The first was a bust, an empty house. The second was an apartment on the edge of town. So I just went looking for this apartment that we thought South Spinelli might be in, and I knocked on the door, had to walk through this apartment complex, and it was this kind of dingy, dark little corridor or so. Uh, I was hoping I didn't get chomped. But uh, I knocked on the door and I could hear a woman and then another woman. And then I could hear them talking about me. Just like, who is this guy? Like, don't answer it. Should I answer it? Like, he might ask about Graham or Grant. And so I don't... I'm like, are they hiding some old lady? Or... I don't know. It was weird. And then I started walking away and I circled around the building because... I said I was, I was looking for Sal and then they were completely quiet and I stood there for like a minute and I walked around the building, I started to leave and this guy pulled up in a car and asked me like, hey are you banging on the door looking for a Sal and I said yes and he said, oh I don't know no fucking Sal so don't, don't do that again, don't bang on the door again. So this is Sal possible address number two, the first one was... Uh, for sale, and nobody was living there. So on with Sal spelunking, hunting. Please don't use this audio. We checked more addresses, but none worked. Turns out, Spinelli's dead. So, too, is Toby Levetter, red dot number 12, the judge who presided over Peggy and Paisley's wedding. Interestingly enough, Levetter also presided over Sal Spinelli's 1968 extortion trial. Go figure. As afternoon melted into evening, Paul and I decided to make one final stop at the home of Al Gannum, Red Dot Number 1. Except that failed, too. Gannum lived in a gated community, and we couldn't get in. By the way, poor Paul. That day was his birthday, and he was stuck driving me around Tucson looking for old mobsters. So we went back to our hotel, and and then we kept working into the night. But work is a stretch. Paul is something of a foodie, so I told him to just pick a place, wherever he wanted, and we'd go there for dinner. Turns out, he was cool with a desert tiki bar, specifically, the Khan Tiki. So, dinner doubled as work. The Khan Tiki. What a place. It's a tiki bar in Tucson one of the oldest surviving tiki bars in the nation. This is the place where, according to Jerry Paisley, Peggy Begich allegedly dined with Joe Bonanno in the summer of 1972, before Nick Begich, her husband, disappeared. The inside can best be described as dark and tropical. Paul and I sat down. We ordered a few drinks. For hours, the only music that played was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. At first, we didn't tell our server, Kaylee-Ann, who we were or why we were there. When we did tell her, she was, to say the least, surprised. So we are standing outside the Contiki. Uh, Could you tell me your name?
3: Uh, Kaylee.
0: And how long have you worked here?
3: I've worked here, I think, about five months so far. Yeah.
0: And what do you know about this place? How old is it?
3: uh well it was either 62 or 63 that it first got established it started as a fine dining steak restaurant from what i've heard uh people say that the interior has barely changed besides the point that they got rid of the red carpet finally this past year and we've had like birds and lizards outside on what is our patio now so
0: have you ever seen any mobsters in here
3: I have not seen any mobsters.
0: <laughs> Do you know who Joe Bonanno
3: is? I have no idea who that is.
0: Okay, so Bonanno was the guy, have you ever seen The Godfather? Yes. Okay, Bonanno was the guy who inspired Don Corleone in The Godfather. And he was, uh, he was in New York and he retired, quote, retired to Tucson. And he actually lived here for a very long time and died. And there's an allegation uh, from someone who was associated with him that in the summer of 1972 that Joe Bonanno met with the wife of a congressman at the Contiki. But hearing this and just standing outside the Contiki and we've all... Tell, tell us your name again. Kaylee. Kaylee, John, Paul. The three of us have all been in there for, what, two, three hours? you probably been in there longer there. than oh, us. Oh, wow. <laughs> <been out> <laughs> what is, What do you think hearing <laughs> that...
3: I mean, I just couldn't imagine that happening in the place that it is now. And considering that it's like a tiki bar, people come here like from all over the United States just to kind of collect our mugs and do other things like that. And our scorpion bowl is what we're known for, which just has a lot of booze in it. So it's kind of crazy to think... At one point, something like that could have happened because this just seems like a free-loving place. But if I mean, I could believe it if it really was the luxurious steakhouse that everyone made it out to be beforehand. Because of course, why wouldn't mobsters go there, right? From what we know from movies. <laughs> but that's just it. That I cannot fully wrap my mind about, around it from how the Contiki is now.
0: Yeah, the Contiki's in FBI documents.
3: I couldn't see that. I mean, we just have a lot of fun people that come in. It's such a diverse crowd, but...
0: So tell me, could you describe the kontiki to me?
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, you can definitely tell that it has some history to it. I mean, just with the decorations and everything we've had, like, a lot of them are original pieces that are in there. Uh, I mean... It's just a fun place, it's so, when you drive up to the Contiki, you're thinking, what is this? Because the buildings on the side, some of them aren't filled, like some of the storefronts and all that, and you just walk inside and it's like you're in your own little oasis, and you're like, there's no way that in the middle of Tucson, Arizona, could be this place. And I mean, people just come here to have fun, have a good time, escape. It's an island escape. <laughs> and,
0: and to hear the allegation that allegedly an assassination plot was hatched partially at the Con Tiki and that it's in FBI documents.
3: I mean, the Tiki's supposed to be a happy place. Either My manager, he's like, it's, it's a Tiki day. It's a, tiki, a day in Tiki paradise. So I couldn't imagine that an assassination was planned in the Tiki. <laughs>
0: I know, I know, it sounds absurd. But guess what? The Contiki was controlled by the mob, at least in part. A few months after our Arizona trip, I traveled with another one of our producers, Chris Brown— no, not that Chris Brown— to Columbia, Missouri, where we spent a day digging through archived records at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Why Missouri? Well, we had been granted special access to a trove of valuable records— these records were compiled in the 70s by journalists working on the Arizona Project. The project launched in the aftermath of the assassination of reporter Don Bowles, who was killed in Phoenix by a car bomb. Amazingly, in these records, which document widespread crime and corruption, Chris and I kept finding names we recognized. The Bananos, the Licavolis, Jerry Paisley, Peggy Begich, Danny Zivinich, Sal Spinelli, Louis Marconi, Joe Iatirola, and the Contiki. Yes, even our beloved Contiki. I found the Contiki described three times as a mob-owned business, specifically that Pete Licavoli Sr. owned it at the time, at least in part. Again, the Contiki was the place where, according to Paisley, Peggy Begich allegedly met with Joe Bonanno. In the records, I also found a memo dated December 16, 1976, written by Alex Dressler, the reporter who secretly observed Peggy and Paisley's wedding. The subject? Bill Bonanno. Joe Bonanno's son. Quote, DS-40 is a confidential law enforcement source in Anchorage, Alaska. He told me that one of his confidential informants, a woman, was on a Hughes Airwest flight December 4th, 1976, from Phoenix to San Jose. On board the plane, sitting next to her, was a man who identified himself as Bill Bonanno. When she told him she was from Anchorage, he stated that he had a bar in Anchorage. Because of Sal Spinelli and Jerry Paisley's involvement with a bar in Anchorage, and the fact that they have been close to Bill Bonanno in the past, it is conceivable that Bonanno meant that this was his bar, end quote. If this source was accurate, and if Bill Bonanno was referring to Paisley's bar, then he was, in fact, referring to the Alaska Mining Company, the bar co-owned by Paisley, Peggy Baggage, and Danny Zivinich, as his bar, a banano bar. Another Dressler memo, citing a different law enforcement source, said, quote, The word is that Peter Licavoli Jr., the 29-year-old son of Detroit Mafia boss Peter Licavoli Sr., with Jerome Max Paisley and Salvatore Spinelli, are in the process of setting up their own group. This alliance would consist of younger members of the Licavoli and Bonanno families, and would attempt to control gambling, narcotics trade, and prostitution organized in Western United States and Alaska. Information has it that Licavoli would head up this new organization with Paisley and Spinelli, who both hold allegiances to Joseph Bonanno, who would control the lucrative Alaska market. It appears that younger members of different organized crime families, namely the Licavoli and Bonanno families, are forming to control the operations in the Western states, including Alaska. This new venture apparently has the sanction of the old Dons, Joseph Bonanno Sr. and Peter Licavoli Sr., end quote. And there was much, much more. In December 1972, according to one document, mob boss Joe Bonanno met at a Tucson hotel with two men, including Joe Ayatarola, or Joey the Eye. Ayatarola, again, was the man Paisley claimed dined with him, Peggy Begich, and Joe Bonanno at the Contiki in the summer of 1972, the man who allegedly gave Paisley the locked suitcase with a bomb that he flew to Alaska, the bomb that allegedly killed the missing congressman. Another memo states that in 1975, Jerry Paisley, Sal Spinelli, and Nick Beggett Jr. attended a Bonanno wedding in Tucson, though it doesn't specify which wedding. Quote, we are interested in these people because of information that they are involved in running prostitutes, narcotics, and stolen goods from Arizona to Alaska, with Peter Licavoli Jr. in charge of the criminal group. End quote. Back in the 70s, Pete Licavoli Jr. denied these allegations. I tried several times to reach him for comment, but he didn't respond. Nick Beggett Jr. declined an interview request. In March 1975, and this was during Paisley's marriage to Peggy Beggett, an informant saw Paisley with Bill Bonanno and Sal Spinelli. Quote, Paisley and Spinelli are involved in the following activities in Anchorage, cocaine, speed, prostitution, gambling, and stolen turquoise jewelry. End quote. Quote, Stolen turquoise jewelry is being run from Arizona through the Nick Beggett's jewelry store in Anchorage. End quote. Also in the archives, and yes, I know you're probably sick of me using that phrase, I found a copy of Jerry Paisley and Peggy Begich's divorce settlement. Paisley and Peggy filed for divorce on March 8, 1976, reconciled, filed again for divorce on September 30, 1976, and, finally, were granted a divorce on November 16, 1976. As part of the divorce settlement, Peggy kept several pieces of land in both Arizona and Alaska. Paisley renounced his interest in the Nick Beggetts Jr. jewelry store. Peggy kept a 1976 Buick wagon, a 76 Oldsmobile, a 74 Jaguar, and a 73 Datsun. Quote, Jerry gets the 75 Caddy, end quote. The settlement also details how Peggy, Paisley, and Danny Zivinich split up ownership of Max Inc., their business, the one behind the Alaska Mining Company. I could go on and on and on, but I have to get to explosives. In the red dot photos, the Paisley-Peggy wedding photos, there are three unnamed men. Now, via these records, I was finally able to identify one of them as Robert Thomas Smith, or Bobby Smith. Paisley and Smith were business partners. They started a company called the Paisley-Smith Construction Company. And guess what? In 1968, Smith was indicted on extortion charges after allegedly bombing a Tucson nightclub. Another man, Victor Vincent Livingston, was indicted alongside Smith. According to a memo I found, Livingston was, quote, an explosives expert who once worked for the Apache Powder Company. Smith reportedly is a driver for Livingston when they're on a job, end quote. So here we have a man in Peggy and Paisley's wedding photo, one of the Red Dots, who was a driver for, and indicted alongside, an explosives expert who allegedly bombed a Tucson nightclub in 1968. But wait, There's more. A memo dated January 29, 1977, states that Sal Spinelli, Paisley's close friend and the best man at his wedding to Peggy Begich, had, quote, ties to a Robert Lloyd Lusk, who was present when Charles O. Louderback was arrested in Alaska for possession of one pound of heroin, a half pound of coke, 21 firearms, live mortar rounds, and thousands of rounds of ammunition, end quote. So Spinelli was one degree of separation from a guy arrested in Alaska for possession of drugs, guns, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and live mortar rounds. There's still more, though. There's still Suitcase Charlie. Yes, Suitcase Charlie. Journalists working on the Arizona Project received multiple reports that Suitcase Charlie, whose real name was Charles Cochran, was the man who allegedly rigged the bomb that killed investigative reporter Don Bowles. A source said, quote, Charles Suitcase Cochran should be questioned about his electronics knowledge in relation to the Bowles case. So in 1976, only four years after Jerry Paisley allegedly transported a mafia bomb from Arizona to Alaska, a bomb he claimed was put on the missing congressman's plane, we have a guy named Suitcase Charlie, who also allegedly worked for the mob, had electronic knowledge, and was good at rigging bombs, pinpointed it as the person who allegedly built the remote-controlled bomb that blew up reporter Don Bowles. None of this proves anything. It's just odd. It shows that there was at least one mob-connected explosives expert in Arizona in the 70s able to build a high-tech bomb. And another twist. Remember, and it's okay if you don't, I get it, this is a lot of information, a man named Victor Livingston? Livingston was the explosives expert tied to Bobby Smith, Smith attended Paisley and Peggy's wedding, Livingston was indicted in 1968 for allegedly bombing a Tucson nightclub, and Livingston once worked for the Apache Powder Company. Well, here's the twist. In 1984, the Arizona Republic ran a series of articles detailing how terrorists responsible for more than 30 bombings in the Philippines around 1980 were trained in the desert near Tucson and, wait for it, the terrorists used explosives purchased from the Apache Powder Company. Yes, these terrorists in the Philippines were trained in the desert near Tucson by a man who bought explosives in 1979 and 1980 from the Apache Powder Company. The same Apache Powder Company for which Victor Livingston, the explosives expert with ties to Bobby Smith, worked. The same Bobby Smith who attended Paisley and Peggy's wedding and started a construction business with Paisley. According to the Republic, a smuggler involved in the terrorist ring was arrested at the Manila airport after, quote, "...one of his suitcases was found to contain bomb components, including 15 sticks of dynamite wrapped in brown wax paper, marked Amigel No. 1, Apache Powder Company, Benson, Arizona, October 19, 1973." So around 1980, terrorists in the Philippines used dynamite with a stamped-on date only one year after Nick Begich disappeared, dynamite procured from a company, the Apache Powder Company, for which Victor Livingston worked as an explosives expert. The same Victor Livingston whose driver was Bobby Smith, the same Bobby Smith who attended the wedding of Peggy Begich and Jerry Paisley and started a construction company with Paisley. This is a lot of information, I know. So to recap, the Arizona Project records document close ties between Jerry Paisley and the Bonanno and Licavoli families. They show that Joe Bonanno and Joe Iatirola, or Joey the Eye, were spotted together two months after the congressman disappeared, only a few months after Bonanno and Iatirola allegedly met with Peggy Begich. They show that Paisley was one degree of separation away from an explosives expert who procured dynamite from a company whose dynamite was later used in more than 30 terrorist attacks in the Philippines. They show that Sal Spinelli, Paisley's close friend and best man, was one degree of separation from a man arrested in Alaska with live mortar rounds. They show the possibility that the Bananos had some stake in the Alaska mining company, the bar run by Peggy Begich, Jerry Paisley, and Danny Zivinich. These records show so many things. Now, do they prove that the missing congressman's plane was bombed? Absolutely not. But in my opinion, it becomes harder and harder to write off Jerry Paisley's allegations when you're looking at an avalanche of documents prepared not by me, but by a team of 40 investigative reporters back in the 70s. Documents that back up parts of Paisley's story. The golden interview, the interview I wanted more than any other, was one with Jerry Paisley himself. Unfortunately, Paisley died in prison of liver cancer in September 2010, a year before I started researching this, so I never had a chance to speak with him. However, in 2014, I found something interesting, an old blog written by an anonymous Arizona prisoner who used a pseudonym and mailed out dispatches that someone else posted online. The name of the blog John's Jail Journal. On it, the author wrote frequently about his friend Two Tonys, a fellow prisoner he described as a mafia mass murderer who left the corpses of rival gangsters from Tucson to Alaska. Two Tonys was, quote, a Detroit Irish-Italian whose wit could upstage Rodney Dangerfield's. I was highly suspicious by this point that Two Tonys was, in fact, Jerry Paisley. The blogger quoted Two Tonys as saying, quote, I sent a few motherfuckers to the other side, but if they were alive today, they'd probably be trailer park trash eaten out of Chef Boyardee cans, so I did him a favor. He described Two Tonys as a fan of the author Tom Wolfe and as someone critical of mass market fiction. Stephen King, for one, according to Two Tonys, was, quote, running a fucking McDonald's franchise. He's pumping out books like he's making quarter pounders. Two Tonys was also critical of pop music. His words, not mine. Quote, Don't give me no country and western with some hillbilly whining about how some granny got drunk and ran over him in a pickup truck. Don't give me no rap with egotistical ghetto stars singing about their bitches' big booties, how much jewelry and money and dope they've got, and how they're driving around in benches with bottles of Cristal in one hand and a crack pipe in the other. Gimme Handel's Messiah. Gimme Strauss's Thunder and Lightning. Anyone who doesn't like that is a fucking animal, sacrilegious. Nietzsche was right. Life needs music. Two Tonys said that when he committed murder, he felt a satiating rush. Quote, It's not easy going into a heavily armed hotel room at 2 in the morning and blowing a guy's face off, but it gives you a feeling of living on the edge. So, Two Tonys seemed to be Jerry Paisley, but I wasn't 100% sure. Thankfully, the anonymous blogger eventually revealed his real name, Sean Atwood, a young British man imprisoned in Arizona for trafficking ecstasy. Atwood, who was deported to the U.K. after he got out of prison in 2007, is now a prolific author and public speaker. We spoke by Skype. And how long after uh, you arrived in prison did you meet Jerry Paisley?
2: I met him in late 2004, I think.
0: So when you write about Jerry you used the pseudonym Two Tonys. Did he ask you to use a pseudonym and not to use his real name? Yes. Um, Is it uncomfortable for you that I know who Two Tonys is?
2: What is slightly uncomfortable is that he asked me not to bring any heat on his ex and their family. Mm -hmm. So he asked that everything regarding their descriptions be substantially changed.
0: When you say his ex, you mean one of his wives? Yes. His first wife or? or second. Paisley's second wife was Peggy Beggage. What did he tell you about Peggy? I mean, did what did he, his marriage to her, how did he describe that?
2: He said it was one of the happiest periods of his life, but he fucked it up.
0: Did he say why he fucked it up or what, what
2: led to it? Yeah, because of that addiction to the lifestyle and because he'd got um, cocaine, which exacerbated his dark side.
0: But did you, did you sense any animosity on his part toward Peggy?
2: No, I felt, felt more the other way around, that he felt that, that he had been in a good situation and that he'd brought her a lot of problem, problems and trouble and risk.
0: Atwood stood out in prison. His nickname was England. He was an intellectual who read more than a thousand books in less than six years. Paisley took a liking to him. Can you describe Jerry to me? What was he like as a person? What was his personality like? What did he look like? Like when you first met him, can you describe that?
2: Very confident, very charismatic. He'd already served a considerable amount of time in prison, so he was... An older guy, a bit like Uncle Junior character out of The Sopranos. And if you've ever watched a movie like Goodfellas or Casino, it was like he just walked off that movie set. The way he spoke, his mannerisms, just like a character out of Goodfellas or Casino.
0: Eventually, Paisley asked Atwood to write his biography on the condition that he continued to mask Paisley's identity even after Paisley died. Paisley told Atwood that he wanted to protect his family. And I think this is very important, because if Paisley was a full-blown sociopath who just craved media and attention and notoriety and fame, why would he care whether or not he was named in his own biography after he died? In 2018, Atwood published Paisley's biography, The Life Story of Two Tonys, in a book called The Mafia Philosopher. In parts of the book, Atwood used composite characters and situations, so I'm not going to quote from it directly. Interestingly enough, there is no mention of Paisley's claim that the missing congressmen were assassinated. Were you aware that he made these claims in 94, 95, that he told investigators that he transported explosives to Alaska and that uh, he played a part in, at least in terms of transporting a bomb in the plane going down? no.
2: I was not aware.
0: He never discussed that with you? No. Now, Paisley could have discussed these claims with Atwood and asked him to keep them quiet. But Paisley's dead, so we only have Atwood's word here, and I believe him. Atwood and I discussed the issue of truth. Again, who do we as a society choose to believe? Who do we instantly write off? This might sound purely philosophical, but it's not it's very practical. Because if the FBI wrote off Jerry Paisley's claims in 1994 and 95 solely because of his past, because he was a criminal, that matters. It means that he could have told them almost anything, and the Bureau would have said, meh, this guy's a criminal, can't believe any of his claims, onward. Maybe the FBI sincerely thought Paisley was lying. Maybe they just didn't want to get involved. Maybe someone told them to drop the case. I don't know. But in my opinion, If someone like Jerry Paisley makes serious, substantial claims, those claims deserve to be investigated. And other claims Paisley made were, in fact, investigated, just by members of local and state law enforcement, not the FBI. Remember, Paisley was convicted of a second murder because he told Arizona investigator Tom Davis that he shot someone to death in a motel. And Davis actually followed up and did his job, unlike the FBI. And if you still say, well, bullshit, John— Let me ask you this. If your spouse or mine disappeared, and shortly thereafter you married a violent, mob connected person who later claimed they played a part in the disappearance of your first spouse, do you think investigators would take those claims seriously? Because I do. None of this is to say that I fully believe Jerry Paisley. It's to say, again, that his claims should have been investigated properly by the FBI. How else do you answer the question of whether or not he was telling the truth? I think that people on the outside looked at Jerry and what he said. And even today, people look at him and say, well, that was a violent guy. I don't believe anything he said. Um, you know, at the same time, like I sit there looking at politicians every day who lie, and it really seems in part to be uh, kind of just a judgment call, like a, partially a class issue. You know, I I mean, everybody lies, and I guess the question is, should, should we believe anything that Jerry said?
2: Should we believe anything that anyone says? I believe in critical thinking, and I'm just a reporter, so I was just the means by which Jerry could tell his story, and it's up to the reader to make that decision, what they believe and what they don't believe. I can't judge him. I mean, he saved my life in prison over a situation. He definitely had a heart. And I saw the human side of him. When we said goodbye, you know, he was, there was tears in his eyes when we said goodbye at the fence. He told me that I was like the son that he'd never had. So people commit extremely violent acts, but they're still human beings. You can't write him off just because and say everything that he said is lies because he was a violent person. Everybody's got that in them. That's one thing he taught me.
0: I asked Atwood what else Paisley shared with him about Peggy Beggage. Were you aware that her former husband was a congressman?
2: Yeah. He told you that? Yeah. What did he say about that? He was very excitable about it, but he never like reveal this bigger picture that you're telling me
0: when you say excitable what do you mean by excitable
2: there was a look in his eye as if there was more and it was a big deal but he never expanded on it
0: if let's say that jerry was telling the truth that there was some kind of foul play involved why do you think he would have not told you
2: okay i i can't um i don't know whether he was involved or not but my best guess on why he wouldn't have told me was because he was trying to steer away anything that could hurt Peggy.
0: Did he express regret about how he treated Peggy and treated the kids? Yes. What did he say?
2: They said that cocaine had scrambled his decision making processes and he had this, you know, he was living in this huge house. He was loving being a dad to the kids. And his own kid would come out from Arizona, and it was all hunky dory. And then he just started slipping into his old ways, but even worse because he started murdering people. And he just let the family down and brought a lot of risk and danger into their lives.
0: Did he ever discuss taking part in any bombings uh, for the Bananos? Like, I, my yeah. understanding. He did.
2: Yeah, he bombed um, the wig salon. He bombed. Um, it's in the book. I can't. I can't specifically remember off the top of my head right now. But he dynamited a few places for the Bananos.
0: Was one the a judge's house? A judge named Evo De. Yeah.
2: Yes, that's it. Yeah, I hundred percent believe he did that. Why? He just was really proud of it and there didn't seem to be any ambiguity when he was telling me that. He so didn't want, any, he, didn't want things, any details changed, he just told it me straight.
0: So you, you understand why all of this is so fascinating to me. You have a guy, you know, I'm, not, I'm not judging you know, Jerry, I never met him, but you have a guy who was a multiple murderer, a bomber, ties to the bananas and the Licavoli's marries the widow of a missing congressman 16 and a half months after her husband disappears, later tells investigators that he transported explosives to Alaska uh, and that somebody else, another man who they later went into business with, um, told him that he put a bomb on the plane and that he was given equity in the business because of uh, his role in the alleged assassination. You understand why this is so absolutely, like, fascinating to me?
2: Yeah, I do. I really do. You know, I, I write books with conspiracies. Um, I wrote a book about Barry Seal, the, the CIA cocaine flying pilot. And all this stuff is fascinating to me as well. And it's just a shame that, you know, he didn't reveal any of that to me.
0: It's, it's interesting because I, I would have thought that if he would tell anybody, he would tell you. And as far as I can tell, other than discussing it in 1994 and 95, he never shared the story with anybody ever again.
2: So he didn't even tell me that he would discussed it with the investigators, which indicates to me that there was a lot more to that story that he didn't tell me. If he wouldn't tell me even that. And what else did he know?
0: Back in Tucson, Paul and I worked hard as the hours ticked down toward our flight out of town. In terms of interviews, Arizona was mostly wash. We got Tom Davis and Steve Fowler, and that's about it. Most of the red dots were dead. The rest, we either couldn't reach or they wouldn't talk to us. So we decided to use our remaining time to visit places tied to the story. We visited the Sahara Motel, where Paisley murdered a man. Now, it's an apartment complex. We visited a plane graveyard, but that was just for fun. And at the very end, we visited the Spanish Trail Motel. It's been a a long trip in Arizona. Paul and I have been here a few days and we have had people back out of interviews. We've been calling numbers left and right. Uh, Old mobsters apparently don't like phones or email. Uh, They don't really like to be contacted. So yeah, Paul and I are standing at the Spanish Trail Motel in Tucson. The sun is almost completely behind the mountains. It's getting dark, it's breezy. The sky is pink and purple and blue, and you can see palm trees. And we're on the periphery of this beautiful old motel that's now completely decayed. There's rust and broken glass and needles and an old shopping cart. And it's very much the epitome of what you want to photograph and explore, urban exploration. Uh, And one of these buildings here with the smashed out windows could have been the place that Jerry Paisley lived, or the room that he said he brought Margaret, who he later said was Peggy Begich, to after she met allegedly with Joe Bonanno. And there's only a slight glimmer of light left here at the Spanish Trail Motel. Paul, you wanna hop the fence? Sure. Okay, so we're gonna, I'm gonna let Paul hop the fence first, cause he's 6'2". I'll, I'll just use Paul as a ladder. I'm not gonna hop the fence. We didn't hop the fence. So at the end of this trip in Arizona, we're standing on the side of a rusted out motel. And honestly, there've been some surprises, but mostly it's been a frustrating trip. We haven't been able to interview many of the people that we wanted to. Nobody's answering their damn phone. We've showed up at uh, Peter Licavoli's house twice today alone. So all we're doing is circling Tucson, trying to find octogenarian mobsters. And (laughs) no answers, man, no answers. So the sun's almost gone, and hopefully somebody doesn't jump out of a bush on this creepy alley and, and, you know, shove a shiv in my rib. Thankfully, though, our Arizona trip wasn't a total bust. We got two good interviews. And remember Bob Martinson, the man who broke the news to me via text that Cokie Roberts, Hale Boggs' daughter, died? The Bob Martinson I told you was important and asked you to remember? Well, on September 17, 2019, in that very same text, the one in which Bob told me Koki died, he also sent me something I had been waiting on for weeks. The exact coordinates of where he found part of a Cessna, part of what could be the missing plane. So armed with this, a latitude and longitude, we were off to Alaska. Next time on Missing in Alaska. If you were a Republican and the head of the Young Republicans Club, why were you arranging a flight for two Democratic congressmen? That's my business.
1: <laughs> I don't care who I flew
2: for as long as I paid the bill. That was my, that's what I did.
0: But the, uh, the flight was unpaid. It was a free flight. You think? Before we go, an epilogue. In December 2019, I got a voicemail from someone surprising, Rosalie Bonanno. Rosalie, now 83, is the daughter-in-law of Joe Bonanno, who she calls Mr. B. In 1956, she married his son Bill at a lavish mafia wedding. Joe, her father-in-law, and Bill, her husband, have both died. I called Rosalie back and left her a voicemail on her jitterbug phone, and then for a while, nothing. When I called again in April, however, she picked up. She was friendly. She even asked how I was holding up in New Orleans during the pandemic. She kindly answered my questions, but didn't want to do a recorded interview. Rosalie said that she and the other Bonanno wives were mostly kept out of the loop. They spent their time in the kitchen. I asked if I could run some names by her to see if she recognized them, and she agreed. Unfortunately, she didn't recognize most of them, including Jerry Paisley, though she said she was going to check with someone who might know more and get back to me. Rosalie did, however, remember Joe Ayatarola. The Bonanno lieutenant Paisley claimed gave him a locked suitcase that contained a bomb. The bomb allegedly put on the missing congressman's plane. Ayatarola is also the man who allegedly dined with Paisley, Peggy Begich, and Joe Bonanno at the Contiki in the summer of 1972. Rosalie told me that Joe Ayatarola and Joe Bonanno were close. She remembers seeing Ayatarola around Bonanno's house. She said the two men respected each other a lot. Before the call ended, I had two final questions. First, did she know of any Bonanno business dealings in Alaska? She said no, but again reiterated that she was kept out of the loop. And I asked whether or not any documentation from the 70s still exists, receipts, checks, diaries, stuff like that. She said that after Joe Bonanno died, she sold a trove of his old checks on eBay and made a small fortune. However, she told me that since Bill Bonanno, her husband, died in 2008, she still hasn't gone through his filing cabinet. She said doing so might be a good project, and she said she would contact me if she found anything interesting. This week, I have two tasks for you, one specific and one vague. First, we're going to post the red dot photos online. If you recognize any of the unidentified wedding guests, let us know. Second, this episode is packed with information, so maybe listen again, take notes, and see if you can find anything we missed. If you do, let us know. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477 or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. An important note, none of the people Jerry Paisley claimed took part in or had knowledge of the alleged bombing, Joe Bonanno, Joe Iattarola, Danny Zivinich, Gene Fowler, Larry Fowler, or Peggy Begich, were ever charged with or convicted of crimes tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Peggy Begich and Danny Zivinich declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. Gene Fowler was unavailable for an interview. Joe Bonanno, Joe Iotirola, and Larry Fowler are dead. Louis Marconi, the ex-cop who was friends with Paisley, also was never charged with, or convicted of, any crimes tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Marconi declined multiple requests to do a recorded interview. Finally, in the 70s, Pete Licavoli Jr. and Mike Licavoli vehemently denied reports that they were involved in organized crime rings. The Licavolis didn't respond to multiple interview requests. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Decken is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam T. Garden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walczak. You can find me on Twitter at Walczak, J O N W A L C Z A K. Special thanks to investigative reporters and editors, or IRE, and specifically executive director Doug Haddix. Thanks also to everyone at the State Historical Society of Missouri, including John Consul, Kevin George, and Beth Pike. And a big thank you to Pauline Loftus for showing us around the Mountain Oyster Club. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.